0: Well, hey, as you make your way back, let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word. If you've got your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. Uh, You can turn to page 1,163 or something like that, 1,163. We stand for the reading of God's Word here at our church. Uh, If you're able, please stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Uh, It is holy and inerrant Uh, Welcome to our church. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. Some of you, when you go to work, you get like really dirty because you have to roll up your sleeves. When I have to work hard at my job, I roll up my sleeves and get wet with the waters of baptism. How cool is that? I mean, that's like pretty neat. Uh, We're into Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, friends. Uh, Welcome to church. We're going to talk about work. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And that there is no partiality with him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open to Ephesians chapter 6 as we pray. Father, this morning as we gather as your beloved people, we reflect on our work lives. And Lord, we pray for your grace. Lord, we pray for diligence. Uh, Lord, if we have the honor of supervising people, Lord, would we see them in a new light with dignity and respect. And Father, would we see the high call that all of our work has. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, hey, welcome to church. It's Christmas time. Let's talk about slavery. <laughs> so if you don't know, if you look down at Ephesians chapter 6, right there, that word bondservant, how else could your uh, Bible translate that word? Anybody else have any other translations? It could also say What? It can also say slave. So uh, the word behind this in the original Greek is doulos, which is the word for slave. And slave could also be rendered as a servant. It could be rendered as a bond servant, or it could be rendered as a slave. Probably the most honest translation is, though, slave. So if you look down in this passage, it's about how slaves interact with their masters. So as we dive into the dicey topic of slavery in the Bible, we do have to step back and say, well, what do they mean by the word Du or what do they mean by the word bond servant or slave? It may not be exactly what you 're thinking of that was from the American South in much of our American history. What you should know as we dive into this passage is that paul 's primary focus is not really trying to speak to the institution of slavery as much as Paul is trying to explain how Christians should live in their work lives. But with that in mind let 's talk a little bit for just a second about the ancient world that Paul found himself in. All right, so if you were Paul, if you were part of the early church uh, in the major cities, places like Ephesus or Corinth or Rome, it's been estimated that 20 to 33% of everyone in the city was a slave or some kind of bond servant. So one way to look at it is if Paul is proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Savior of all people, all who can call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved, Paul can't ignore one-third of all of humanity. Far from denigrating these slaves, Paul is actually honoring them in a way that we often miss. If you were to look down at Ephesians 5 and 6, look down at Ephesians 5 and 6, starting in verse 22. This is Ephesians 5, verse 22. Notice that Paul starts sort of a household code. He says, Husbands, this is how you treat your wives. Parents, this is down in verse 6 1, Parents, this is how you treat your kids. And then in 6 verse 5, he says, slaves, this is how you interact with your master. And really, that is a household code that was very, very common in Paul's world. That's how people understood ethics. If you wanted to know how to be an ethical person, that was the framework that you took. So Aristotle, have you ever heard of Aristotle? He uses this exact same framework on his book on ethics. So Paul is not necessarily endorsing slavery so much as he is taking a concept that they understood and imbuing it with the gospel. And I love what Frank Thielman says, because in this passage, what Paul and really Jesus Christ himself is doing is he's cutting the thread that binds the institution of slavery together. Another way of looking at it is Paul is pulling out the pillar stones underneath the institution of slavery. Now that may seem strange because you're saying, well, Paul's telling servants or slaves to obey their masters. So how is Paul doing that? Well, notice all throughout this passage, look down in your Bible, notice the dignity with which Paul is speaking to slaves. He's saying that they are full servants of Christ, that they are fully equal before the Lord. In fact, when Aristotle was talking about how slaves and masters should operate, do you think Aristotle ever talks about directly to the slave? You think he even bothers speaking to them? Of course he doesn't, because to Aristotle, they were simply living tools. That's what he called them. Well, it sounds to me like Aristotle's the tool, but that's neither here nor there. So first off, you need to recognize Paul has to speak to slaves because they're made in the image of God, and that's a third of all humanity in Ephesus. To ignore them would actually be tantamount to the disrespect. Also, you may want to know this about slavery. Slavery in this ancient world is different than what you and I are thinking of. We're thinking of the chattel slavery that involved man-stealing from Africa, where then the slaves were perpetually enslaved for the rest of their life, and the owners owned their children as well. That's not the kind of slavery, though, That was often found in Paul's world. You see, slaves in this context, up to 50% of them, could anticipate being released by the age of 30. And how did people become slaves in this ancient world? Well, many of them sold themselves into slavery. And they would do so for a period of time so they could possibly get Roman citizenship. And also, slavery in this culture is not race-based. In fact, slaves were often encouraged to be educated. And in fact, they would sell themselves, sell themselves for the hope that they would often grow into society. So a famous example of this is a guy named Felix. Anybody name your dog or cat Felix or your kid? Well, Felix is the governor of Judea. You can read about him in the book of Acts 23. He's the governor. Pretty important, wouldn't you say? Well, guess how Felix worked his way up into society? He sold himself into slavery worked really hard, got himself free, and he became the governor of Judea. Now, I'm not saying that slavery was okay. Slavery was awful. It was dehumanizing. But friends, it was ultimately overturned by Christian men and women who took the gospel seriously. If you look down at Ephesians 5:22 through 6, 9, look at that section, that household code. Notice that when Paul talks to husbands and wives, he pulls from the Old Testament. The institution of marriage has roots from the very first words of the Bible, you know, Adam and Eve stuff. Then if you look down at how parents and kids are supposed to interact, where does Paul pull his divine authority from? He quotes the Ten Commandments. But notice there's no sense in this section that slavery is some kind of divinely instituted reality of life. Uh, John Chrysostom, uh, St. John Chrysostom, you could call him, he's a church father. It means he's a really old guy who was one of the first pastors. Writing in the 300s, he preached on this passage to, guess what? People who were slaves primarily. And he said this, if someone should ask, where does slavery come from and why it has found entrance into human life? And many I know are both to glad are glad to ask such questions, and they desire to be informed of them. I will tell you. This is Chrysostom, Saint Chrysostom, telling us in the 300s. He's preaching the sermon. Slavery is the fruit of covetousness, of degradation, of savagery. Since Noah, we know, had no servant, nor Abel, nor Seth, no, nor they who came after them. Slavery is the fruit of sin. I could keep going in the early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, the Greek father writing in the 300s says slavery is sinful. It has no divine institute. So why does the Old Testament have laws regulating it? For the same reason Moses gave laws regulating divorce, but such is not the will of God. So let me ask you this. What would it say of Paul if Paul's writing to the church where potentially more than a third of them were slaves, but Paul never addressed them directly? never treated them with the dignity that they could themselves work to the glory of God. Nothing in Ephesians says this is a divinely instituted reality. In fact, if anything, slavery was overturned by the work of Christians. Uh, who Who helped overturn slavery in the British Empire? Anybody know? William Wilberforce, the great evangelical Christian. So what is Paul's point If he's not necessarily endorsing slavery as is, what I'm suggesting to you is he's addressing with dignity slaves for the first time. And Paul's also putting the seeds in the ground that are going to ultimately one day make slavery crumble. What is Paul's point? Paul's dignifying all people, and he's showing you and I how the gospel impacts our work life. It's about this is our work life. Anybody here ever have to feel like your boss makes you do things you don't want to do? Anybody ever go on Monday morning with drudgery, thinking your job is unimportant, undignified? Supervisors ever get frustrated with your employees? You see, if you were to look at Ephesians, what Paul is doing, really, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, what Paul is doing is he's showing how does the gospel work itself out in everyday life. In Ephesians 4, the first half, he talks about how the gospel works itself out in relation to other Christians in the church. Then he goes on and he talks about how Christianity shapes how we think about ourselves. In Ephesians 5, he says, how do we live the Christian life in relation to the dark world that we live in? How do we engage a culture that doesn't share our values? Then going on to Ephesians 5 again, he says, how does it shape your marriage? Then he says, how does the gospel shape the way you parent? And now he's going to say, how does the gospel shape your nine to five job? How does it shape the way that you see your employer, your employees? It is nitty gritty and it is practical. So, uh, if you're still employed, if you still get a paycheck, raise your hand, just out of fun fact. Okay. Or if you're a kid in the room and you go to church or you go to school. We don't pay you to church. I mean, we should, and probably help attendance, but you know what I mean. <laughs> if you're a kid in the room, you go to school. Okay. So, how are we supposed to engage work? What I'm suggesting to you is that by the end of the year you're going to see how Paul's upending slavery for the long haul, but more directly, he's trying to speak to how does the gospel address work. All right? That's my contention this morning. So look down at Ephesians 6, verse 5. He says, slaves, uh, originally doulos. You can learn a Greek word today, doulos. There you go. I won't charge you for that. Doulos, Greek word for slave, bondservant. servant. He says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So the first thing we need to see is that Paul wants us to do our jobs. I think that's what Paul would say if he were speaking to us today. He says, do your jobs as to the Lord. Work hard. The first phrase he uses, though, right there is fear and trembling. You see that in verse five? Fear and trembling. Is Paul uh, suggesting that it's okay for masters to beat their slaves? No. Actually, in this very passage, he says, don't even threaten to do that to your slaves. He says, stop your threatening. So what does fear and trembling mean? Is that oh, fear and trembling? Is that what he really means? No. Uh, if you don't know this, Jewish people love hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is when you way overstate your case. You know, like when Jesus says, if your eyeball causes you to sin, what do you do? Pop it out of your face. That's called hyperbole. <laughs> Nobody laughed at the pop of the eyeball sound, y'all. It's like my best sound effect ever. (laughs) Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers, they use hyperbole, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Okay, that's hyperbole, y'all. That's hyperbole. You're supposed to take sin seriously, but that's hyperbole, right? Fear and trembling is this kind of hyperbolic way. And what does it mean to have fear and trembling? It means utter respect, Let me give you an example of this. So Paul tells the Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells the Corinthians to listen to Titus with, guess what? Fear and trembling. Do you think Paul literally wants them trembling when Titus comes? No, but he's saying take them with utter respect. Paul himself tells the Corinthians, When I came to you, I came with, guess what? In fear and in much trembling. I came to you in much respect, and I want you to have respect to me. And then, of course, he tells the Philippians that you and I are ultimately to have fear and trembling. Towards whom? To work out our salvation with, guess what? Fear and trembling, with utter seriousness and respect. So, why would you, Christian, slave of Christ, do loss of the Lord, bondservant of Christ, why would you work that hard? You know, It's going to take a mental leap, but just think about this for a second. Uh, Chrysostom, in his famous uh, sermon on this passage, he has this beautiful idea uh, that I want to pass on to you. And he basically says, if you have a job that you don't like doing, right? Anybody have a job they don't like doing? Or you have a tough boss, and you feel like you're working out of duty or obligation, and it's drudgery. Actually, what Chrysostom would tell you is that really in your heart... You can become free in your work if you work for God and not your boss. And when you freely choose to work as hard as you can to the glory of God, then you become free. This is what Chrysostom says, Serve on principle and by choice, not under compulsion. If you serve freely in this way, you are no slave if your service comes from your free choice, from good will, from the soul and on account of Christ, you are no longer a slave. He goes on and he gives this very gospelly subversive idea. Think about it this way. This is, this is so interesting because this shows how Christians think, okay? This is not how we think. This is how Christians, though, historically have thought. Christ's analogy goes like this. If somebody robs you and you choose to give them even more than what they take from you, you cease to be robbed and you become a what? A generous giver. And by doing so, you heap shame on the robber and show yourself more virtuous. How does Jesus say we should treat people when they strike us on the cheek? Hit them back twice as hard? The American way? (laughs) The manly way? What do you do? you turn the other cheek. Why? Because by your humility, you may save their soul. How did Martin Luther King change our world in the 1960s? Anybody know? He practiced a certain kind of resistance. What was it called? Anybody know? Nonviolent resistance. And he has principles for why he does it. You know why he did it? It's because his goal was not to humiliate the oppressor but to redeem them by his humility. And guess what? turns out when you turn the other cheek, it actually works. If you have a job that you hate, friends, if you hate your job, the gospel meets you right there if you do your work as to the Lord. What does it look like to not hate your job? Um, I love everything about my job. I love getting wet from baptism waters. I love talking to y'all. I like it when y'all uh, disagree with me. I like everything about being a pastor. It's great. Um, what is something I don't like doing? So I've thought about this. What am I called to do that I don't like doing? And I have something that I don't like doing that I do out of drudgery and out of obligation. Anybody want to guess what it is? It has nothing to do with church because everything about church is great. Thank you. Changing... Levi's diapers, when he gets into his diaper and his room is covered in stuff, and so are his hands, and his hands reach into my face and stuff. It happens once or twice a month. It's horrible, y'all. But once I start to believe that my work is the place where Jesus Christ himself, by his spirit, meets me, I have an internal choice to make, to do it out of drudgery, as to man, or to make it an offering of service to the living God. And guess what? When I remember that God is always watching me and that by my good work, I can please the heart of my father, I'm just a little bit more gentle as I wrestle him and wipe him clean. Do you hate your job? Are there parts of your job that you utterly hate? (laughs) Guess what? Every hard part of your job is an opportunity to serve the living God and say, Lord, I hate this, but I'm doing it for you. And guess what? Your heart may actually change. Notice how Paul wants people to work. Look at verse five, with a sincere heart, meaning your heart is really in it as if you were serving Christ Jesus himself, not by way of what? Eye service. What does eye service mean? Does this mean that Paul hates ophthalmologists? Did I say that word right? Is there an ophthalmologist in the room? An obst- obstetrician, orthopedic, ophthalmologist, obstetrician. <laughs> I think it's ophthalmologist. Is that the word for an eye doctor? Yes. All right, we got some running around somewhere. I love my ophthalmologist people. They give me great glasses. What does it mean to not work for Eye Service? Well, uh, we don't really exactly know why Paul likes to make up words. Did you know that Paul, some Paul makes up phrases all the time? He's very creative. Uh, he's like Shakespeare in that way. You know, nobody had ever said the word eyeball until Shakespeare said it or bedroom. Shakespeare is just his creative mind, just making up stuff. Paul's kind of the same way. He says, "eye service. And you're like, what does that mean? No one had ever said that before from what we know. And what it means is it means is don't just work hard when the boss is watching you. Anybody here have coworkers? You ever notice when the boss is around, everyone's sitting up a little straighter. Everybody's, ooh, everybody look busy, right? Bosses don't act like that, always work hard. You know why? Because who's watching you? The Lord is watching you, and your work is an opportunity to glorify him. Far from separating the sacred from the secular, right? Sometimes we have this idea that there's like sacred work that matters, like being a pastor or like, I don't know, being a missionary. That's what matters. And then my drudgery job, it doesn't matter at all. Friends, that is far from the truth. Everything matters. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know why? Because all work is in service to somebody. What's the greatest commandment? Somebody, quick, what's the greatest commandment? Love God and what else? Love Love your neighbor as yourself. That's as basic as Christianity gets. The number one person that you often love the most at work is whom? Your client's your students, your employees. The way that you love your neighbor is often through the thing through which you spend most of your life thinking about. Anybody here spend more time thinking about work than any other topic in your life? You've got to let the gospel meet you there. When you work hard at your job for the Lord, you are loving your neighbor because when you work harder, you are showing that that person matters. Guess what? Even if you never meet them, even if you never meet them, you're not doing it for their eye service. You're doing it because God sees it. Don't be a people pleaser. Barf, right? Don't just work hard when people are watching you. Notice that Paul goes on and he says what? That you and I are what? Here's that word again. Again. He says that you and I are what? Bondservants of Christ. Look at verse 6. The real slaves. Who are the real slaves? We are. We are slaves. Slaves are bought and purchased. Christian, how were you purchased by God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are purchased. You are not what? Your own. You are the bond servant of God. You do what your master calls you to do. Slaves of Christ, obey your Father with fear and trembling. Serve Him at your work with a sincere heart, as if you were serving Christ, not just because your boss is watching you, but because you are a slave of Christ, doing His will from your heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. Don't just work hard because you think your boss is going to promote you. You ever heard the parable of the three stonemasons? This is my favorite parable from the book of Second Opinions. It's Second Opinions 316. Some of you are like, I've never heard of that book of the Bible. Second opinions, uh, there's an ancient story of the parable of the three stones. I love it, right? You've probably heard it before, but a guy's going into this, you know, beautiful medieval European city, you know, I don't know, Geneva or something, right? And this guy's visiting town, and he sees these stonemasons, you know, chipping away at the stones, building, you know, the foundation of a cathedral. And the visitor comes up to the stonemasons, and you've heard this story before. He goes up to the three guys, and he says, what are you all doing? And the first stonemason says what? I'm chipping stones for the foundation. The visitor says, okay. He goes to the same guy and says, well, what are you doing? And the guy says, what? I am earning a wage for my wife and kids. He says, okay. And then he goes to the third stonemason. He says, well, what are you doing? And the stonemason says, what? I'm building a cathedral for the living God. When you go to work tomorrow morning, are you chipping stones? Changing diapers? Dealing with your employees or your clients? Or are you a little bit more virtuous? You know, I'm I'm going to hard work because I love my wife and kids. I'm going to hard work because I love my family. I'm going to work so I can buy Christmas presents for the grandkids. Great. Still not quite there. Christian, each one of us is called to be a living stone in the temple. All of our life is building the cathedral for the living God. How do you most love your neighbor? Well, it may be the thing that you spend most of your life thinking about through your work. And even if you never meet your clients, guess what? God sees everything. Everything. Paul says that you and I are slaves. Bondservants, the due loss. How? Because Christ has purchased us. We are members of his household. And don't let that bother you, right? Paul says he himself is a slave to God. He says that in Romans 1. Also, the Old Testament tells us that Moses was, guess what? A slave of God. And what's really beautiful, uh, you know, this goes back to there's, you know, American chattel slavery that involved man stealing, which is a sin according to First Timothy. It was race-based. There's all. I'm not saying anything about the American uh, Southern Slavery Institute for just a second, but just go back to the Old Testament for a second and its laws on slavery. If you go over to read the Old Testament, it says, what, does, what does the Old Testament say about slavery? Well, guess what it says. In the seventh year of a slave, if you've been a slave for six years, year seven, guess what? You're set free. And the master is supposed to provide for the slave that they would have a good life. So it's a temporary thing in the Old Testament. Jewish slaves could could not be enslaved for more than six years. But what's interesting when you read Exodus 21, and this kind of colors our understanding of ancient world slavery, is actually during the seventh year, some slaves, according to Exodus 21, some slaves would want to do what? Stay a slave forever. And Exodus has to speak to that. Well, what if my slave loves me and what if I honor him and what if his family is blessed by working for me and what if he's too poor? He'll never really do better than what I can provide for him. What do you do when a slave wants to be a slave forever? And guess what you do? Anybody know? In Exodus 21.5, it says, if a slave chooses to be a slave forever, you shall take him out public in front of the city and put his ear on a little thing and you shall pierce his ear so his ears would be pierced permanently with the scars of slavery. And then he could be a slave forever. Christian, guess who else the Bible calls a slave? A doulos. Guess who else has the marks of slavery, but not on his ears, but on his hands and feet and side? Philippians 2 says this, Christian, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, guess what? Slave being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus says to his disciples, everybody likes to lord their authority over people, but sh- that is not how you are to be. That is not how you are going to learn the gospel. Instead, what Jesus says is you shall be the slave to all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christian, we serve the Lord because he miraculously serves us. His body bears the marks of slavery. Friends, how do you work? You work from a true heart, knowing that God watches over all. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You and I work every day with the talents that you and I have. Remember the parable of talents? I preached on it earlier this year. Kudos to you if you remember this one. Some people get a lot of talents. Some people get some. Some people just get one. But the goal is at the end of your life, the master says what to you? Well done, good and faithful. Guess what the word is? Slave. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the goal of every Christian. So that's how we work as employees. Go down to Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians. How does he want us to operate if we have the incredible privilege of supervising others? What does he say to masters? Look at verse 9. Masters, bosses. Anybody here supervise people? You can raise your hand. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to. People in charge of other people. Masters, do the same to them. That's quite the phrase. If you're a boss, you should underline that. Do the same to your slaves as they do to you. Do the same to them as they do to you. See, that's part, you see what Paul just did? He pulled out one of the pillars of the institution of slavery. And then he takes away their greatest power over their slaves, which is threatening to beat them. Stop your threatening. Not only does he say, don't beat them, the point is you can't even threaten to beat them. Stop your threatening. Why? Because you know that God is both master of your slaves and also of you in heaven, and there is no partiality in him. You see, what Paul is doing is he's giving masters this utter charge to know that they are equal with their employees, equal with their slaves. In fact, all of Ephesians 1 through 3, if you read Ephesians, it's all about the equality of all humanity, before the throne of God. But really what I think Paul is doing is he's giving bosses, supervisors, whatever you want to call it, really a standard for what it means to be a Christian and oversee people. And here's the rule. You ready for the rule? I'm sorry, maybe you don't like rules. Maybe that's just religion. Um, But here's a rule of life, of supervising life, that you can either take or spit out. It's your choice. I would suggest to you that the real test of somebody's character is how they treat people they think are beneath them. You'll really know somebody's character by the how they treat their employees, not how they treat their boss. Guess what? Fun fact, everybody knows to kiss up to the boss. Nobody's impressed when you kiss up to the boss. You know why? Because you stand to gain from that. You want to see somebody's real character when they treat somebody they think is way beneath them. You know, like how they treat the waiter or the waitress. Somebody they think is serving them. Or, you know, um, what's that strange world? Um, California. You know, that far off distant strange place. Every, every time you go through California and someone's like, do you have bananas? And you're like, hide the bananas. How do you treat that guy? Well, that spoke to somebody. You know, how do you treat that person? How do you treat somebody on the phone? you know, from the credit card company? How do you treat the gas attendant? You know, you want to know what somebody's really like, watch how they treat people they think is beneath them. They'll tell you everything you need to know. Everything you need to know. they treat them with dignity or do they, you know, look down on them? Masters, do the same to the slaves. Don't threaten them know that your master is in heaven watching over you. <laughs> you know, did you catch that? It's like the slave's like, God's watching over you. And the slave's like, great. And then he's like, masters, don't forget. God's watching over you. And it's like, that strikes a little differently for some reason. <laughs> Let me just finish up, friends. How might you need to reshape how you view your job? Hmm? How do you need to maybe redefine the dignity of, of your work, do you need to change your attitude toward your boss, toward your supervisor, toward your employees? And let's do a theological test to just kind of finish up. Christian, are you free? If the sun sets you free, you are what? So, Christian, are you free? <laughs> it's like people think it's like a trick question. <laughs> are you free, Christian? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Okay, that's basic Christianity. Okay. Christian, are you a slave? Yes. Christian, are you also a friend of God? Are you also a son and daughter, a co-heir? Yes, all of those analogies are true. Just work like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the dignity that you give our jobs. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we go to work tomorrow, Lord, that we would not uh, fall into the trap of thinking the sacred has stopped and the secular has began. Uh, But Lord, that we would see our Monday through Friday jobs as opportunities to commune with you. Uh, Lord, if you need to break the hearts of the supervisors, Lord, would you give them a tenderness? Would they use this holiday season to make Uh, any reparations or kindnesses they need to their employees to encourage them. Father, if we are struggling to uh, respect our overseers, our bosses, and supervisors, Lord, would you change the way that we are seeing it? Lord, would we truly see that we are serving you? Lord, we pray that we would love our co-workers well, that we would change the way that we are seeing them, and Lord, that we would be representatives of you. And Lord, most of all, we thank you that your Son, Jesus, our Savior, humbled himself so low that he took the scars of the cross for us. And Lord, we praise you that now he is alive, that he is seated at your right hand, and that he is making all things new. Lord, would we work like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.